The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this morning. The word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. We'll be reading through verse 37 this morning. The word of our God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Please keep your place here in the Gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. This coming year, you, yes you, are going to be asked to testify at a trial. And they're going to have you come up and take the stand and raise your right hand, and they're going to ask you this question. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, under penalty of perjury? Depending on the jurisdiction, they might add, so help me God. What do you do? Do you take that oath, Or do you refuse to swear 
on religious grounds. And what do you say when, in the ordinary course of your day, people refuse to take what you're saying at face value? When you really, really want them to believe you, do you just walk away? Or do you try to press them on in the matter by saying, I swear, I'm telling you the truth? Or perhaps the children's version of this, at least when I was a little kid, cross my heart, Hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You know, I don't hear that anymore. I, I should have said that this morning. You young people forget that. <laughs> don't say that. Have you ever stopped to think about how brutal that is? You know, what that saying is, may my heart be cut into four pieces, and may I be put to death if I'm not telling you the truth. And if I don't die, at least may one of my eyes be gouged out. Let me just say, it is a testament to the astonishing grace of God that so many people my age made it to this age with both of our eyes. Right? God did not enforce that oath upon us as, frankly, we deserved. Oaths are, in fact, a very serious matter. Jesus has quite a bit to say about them in this brief passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus first introduces us to the problem. Look at verse 33 with me. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now let's make sure we're clear about what an oath is. Actually, in modern English, we use oaths to cover two categories of things. One is people take an oath of office where they're promising to be faithful in discharging the duties of the office in which they're entering. And people do that in the military. They do it in Congress. They do it in all manner of roles. Uh, what they're actually promising there is faithfulness about their own future activities. And uh, ordinarily, they would ask that God would help them to be uh, faithful. Such oaths of office, at least traditionally, have ended with the words, so help me God, right? God, help me to hold up this commitment that I'm making before you. Um, we can actually call that vows. Uh, we do that when we have, uh, for example, weddings. We call the marriage oath a wedding vow. It's a commitment of the husband and wife on how they're going to behave before God and toward each other for the rest of their lives. Or when people join the church, they take membership vows. So that's one way the term oath is being used. The other way we use the term oath is that I am swearing that what I'm telling you right now is the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now both of those meanings are actually touched on in this passage. I want you to realize that Jesus' focus here is not primarily trying to split up the difference between oaths and vows. Rather, he is teaching us as his people that we ought to speak with such integrity that our simple, plain words can always be taken at face value. That our Savior, who is the truth incarnate, is gathering disciples to himself who reflect who we belong to, belonging body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, by the words we use in our day-to-day -day life. That's what Jesus is driving at. 
So why do people swear oaths in the first place? I want to make a connection here between um, this passage and the one that comes before it, which might seem a little bit strange at first. But back in verses 31 and 32, Jesus was talking about God's laws regarding divorce. Now, why does God have laws regarding divorce? If every single person who entered into marriage, both husbands and wives, was always faithful, there would never be divorce. But because of sin, there is divorce. And God chooses to regulate that sin by establishing laws around divorce and remarriage. But you know what? We're so sinful that we in turn take God's gracious provision of regulating our sin and we distort that too, right? And so the Jewish people in Christ's day were doing that very thing. And Jesus comes to them and says, I'm going to teach you the law as it was always intended. First, my people are to be faithful, so this shouldn't even be an issue. But secondly, in those areas where there's unfaithfulness, God's law is clear. And you need to follow his law, not the traditions of mere men. Well, the same thing happens with our words. Why do we need to have oaths? Because we lie. Well, that was pretty blunt. The reason why we need to have oaths is because we lie. If everybody always talked with integrity and told the truth, there would never be any need for oaths or vowing. People would just let their yes be yes, their no be no. Whether it's in a court of law or in a wedding ceremony, it wouldn't matter. And we'd always be faithful to it. But because people lie, and we all know this, we live in a world where people shade the truth, bend the truth, and sometimes outright lie, we have to deal with what that means in circumstances where we're really, really relying on them to tell the truth. You know, if there's a trial where your life is on the line, whether or not you're guilty, it just isn't going to do if we allow witness after witness to come into the, the uh, witness box and just lie through their teeth. So we try to do something, in fact, God has given us something, to try to make people hang closer to the truth. That is, they swear, and biblically, they swear in the name of the Lord, that they're telling the truth. They're calling God to help them tell the whole truth, and they're calling God to witness against them that if they're not holding to the truth, God will hold them accountable, God who sees everything that we do. And if people fear the Lord that actually is going to move people away from, I don't know, I could shade this a bit, to I'm going to tell the truth. But it turns out that even in a world where individuals don't necessarily believe the truth, the fact that society says, you know what, when you swear an oath here, we're going to take it more seriously. If you lie and we catch you, we're going to prosecute you for perjury, means people are more likely to tell the truth when they're under oath. Right? So that's why we have oaths in the first place. But human beings being sinners, we take this good thing that God has given us, a way of regulating speech under special circumstances that's going to help us have truth, and we twist it, we distort it, and we use it for evil ends. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in the passages before us this morning. Now let's remind ourselves... But the expression you have heard, you've heard it said, uh, in this passage he gives the full expression, you've heard it said to those of old, but in other places in the Sermon on the Mount he just says you have heard it said, but you have heard points us that he's talking about the oral law. 
the traditions that have built up among the rabbis over centuries. He's not contrasting what he's about to say with what God had already taught through the law of Moses, right? Uh, Jesus is expounding the law of Moses and showing us what it always meant. He's cleaning away those traditions of men that obscure that law. He's saying, your traditions say X, but I'm going to tell you what is really going on. Let me back up just one verse here, because I think this will be helpful. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's what you've heard. The contrast is, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now doesn't that sound like Jesus is saying, You've heard it said that, you know, you should be faithful when you take your oaths. Take them seriously. But I'm just ruling it out of bounds. Oaths aren't for my people. You ought not to take them at all. And I think at first blush it can sound that way. But if we look at the broader context of what Jesus is doing, and if we look at the context of the whole Bible, we can see that can't possibly be what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not forbidding oaths in every single circumstance. Four very quick points. First, the Lord doesn't just permit the taking of oaths. He commands the taking of oaths under some circumstances. Right? That, that'll make it clear that Jesus isn't forbidding oaths. The Lord doesn't simply permit the taking of oaths. He commands the taking of oaths under some circumstances. For example... Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. If you think about that simple verse, there's three commands in there, three imperatives. They're, They're not permissions like, well, you know, you can fear the Lord your God if you want to. They're commands. You shall fear, you shall serve, and you shall swear. Importantly, you shall swear in my name. Uh, Hold on to that thought, you shall swear in my name. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Second, um, sticking with Deuteronomy, most of the oaths in Deuteronomy are actually taken by God, not by human beings. Now the Lord, of course, is unquestionably always true. He's truth itself. But he puts himself under oath precisely to give us assurance out of his grace toward us. And since most of the oaths taken in Deuteronomy, and I think this is actually true of the whole Old Testament, are actually taken by the Lord, it's kind of a strange idea that God would then be turning around and going, oaths are bad. Now I grant that theoretically God could be saying, it's good for me, bad for you. But the fact that he's already commanded people to take oaths, as we saw in Deuteronomy 6.13, makes that seem exceedingly unlikely. Third, I wonder if you remember that Jesus was put under oath by the high priest on his trial. How did Jesus respond? The high priest says, I adjure you in the name of the living God. Does Jesus say, who are you to put me under oath? I don't have to do that stuff. By the way, I don't want my people taking oaths. No, in fact, when the high priest puts Jesus under oath, Jesus tells the plain truth that will lead to his own crucifixion. Jesus' own example is one of a truth-teller 
who's willing to speak under oath. And finally, and I think this is absolutely decisive, the Apostle Paul repeatedly puts himself under oath. Now, I want to say that even if the Apostle Paul was apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if Jesus was commanding his disciples to never take oaths, it is really unthinkable to think that the Apostle Paul would repeatedly do so. But in fact, he does so not simply independent, as it were, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God, the Holy Spirit, cannot be wrong. If you're wondering how he does that, by the way, um, think about this language that he regularly uses. God is my witness. And then he goes on to give people assurance that he's praying for them, caring for them, longing to visit them. God is my witness is oath language. He's calling God to bear witness that what he's saying is true, and if he's not, that God would judge him. So it, is, it simply isn't possible that Jesus here is ruling out oaths, and if in fact you are in a court of law next year, and they, they, they ask you to raise your right hand, you ought not to object to taking an oath in those circumstances on religious grounds. But if Jesus isn't forbidding all swearing, what exactly is going on? What is he forbidding? Well, let's take a look at the rest of the passage under three headings. First, don't play games with God's law. Second, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And third, speak as a person who belongs body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give those three to you again. First, don't play games with the law of God. Second, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And third, speak as a person who belongs, body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We begin with not playing games with the law of God. Look at verses 34 through 36 with me. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white, or black. Did you notice what the people are swearing by that Jesus is addressing? They're not swearing in the name of the Lord. The very thing they were commanded to do in Deuteronomy 13, take your oaths, swear in the name of the Lord. They're not doing that. Perhaps this is a bit like people saying, I swear on my mother's grave. Right? I don't know if that goes around anymore either. I'm really out of touch on these things. But, but that's a sort of expression. And that never is going to pass muster in a court of law. It's not going to pass muster when you're taking an oath of office. Right? The President of the United States can't say, as he's getting sworn in, I swear on my mother's grave, that there's a formal oath that they're supposed to take. So when do we talk like that? Well, I hope you don't talk like that, but when do people talk like that? Is there in a informal environment. There's some push and shove going on in their discussions, and the other person isn't believing them. 
And they say, I swear on my mother's grave to try to push it over the top so the other person will agree with them. Say, oh yeah, you must be telling the truth now. Right? And perhaps that was be taking place in business dealings in ancient Israel. In fact, we know that that was because we have a great deal of literature that shows how scandalously the Jewish people played these games with the law of God. Well, what should you do if you're in that situation? What should you do if the other person you're talking to doesn't believe you? Well, the first thing that should be said is that we ought to live lives of such integrity as the people of God that they should believe us. That the people who know us would take you at your word. Who would say, you know, you can trust Jody. You could trust Ron. You could take their word to the bank. Right? That, that's the way we ought to be living. But what if the person, even though you're living a respectable life of integrity, refuses to take you at your word anyway? What do you do? You want them to believe you, and they don't. Think about that. Here's my answer for you. I think ordinarily you ought to just walk away. It is not your job to get other people to respond the way that you want. Your calling in life is faithfulness. Your calling is to please God. He is the one that you have to honor and please. You do not have to satisfy anyone else who's trying to hang you out there and go, yeah, I don't really believe you about this. You really ought to just walk away in most circumstances. Let me say something else about this. This is practical. Now, I want to say this is not in this passage. But I think it's a practical application of this idea of walking away. Um, You know, most people are going to assume that you will act the same way in the circumstance that you're in that they would act if you were in their shoes. Think about that. Most people will assume that you will act the same way in your circumstances if they were in your shoes, how they would act. Well, one of the things that means is if they would steal from their boss, they'd assume you'd steal from your boss. If under pressure or under a a temptation to get something, they would lie, they will assume that you will lie too. And the very fact that they're not believing you may be an indication. I'm saying may, not must, but may be an indication that you're talking with someone that lacks integrity in their own life. And actually walking away will not only spare you from overreaching, saying too much, making promises that you might not be able to keep, it may actually save you from a relationship with a person who lacks integrity that is going to cause you problems down the road. So I'm suggesting that one of the things, not the only way to deal with it, but one of the ways we could deal with it is by simply walking away. Well, the problem is simple. While we all want to be known as people of integrity, we also do want to be taken at our word. But we also don't like the price that we have to pay to always tell the transparent truth. So we, and you'll notice I'm not limiting this to ancient Jews, so we sometimes try to find approaches that allow us to have it both ways. We shade the truth a bit while trying to maintain our own self-image as people of integrity. It turns out that the ancient Jewish religious leaders did this very thing with oaths. 
they, de they developed this very elaborate system of causatry that said, you know, if we can change the language and fiddle with it about how you're swearing, that sometimes it's binding and sometimes it's not. Right? It's not a big deal. And by the way, you know, you're avoiding using the name of God here. That's really important. Because you don't want to swear in the Lord's name and then take his name in vain. I mean, that's a clear violation of the Ten Commandments. It says swear by the temple. Swear by the earth, your head. Swear on your mother's grave, something else. And it's those you don't touch the Lord's name, you're free to simply swear any way that you want. This was really a huge problem in the first century that even... Um, some ancient Gentile historians point out about the Jews that they weren't trustworthy. Isn't that a terrible thing for the people of God to be known as? They weren't trustworthy because they were playing all these games with their word rather than simply allowing their yes to be yes and their no to be no. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans, the name of God is blasphemed on their account. Uh, we're going to actually see this wicked practice spelled out in more detail later on in the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to give you just one verse here from Matthew 23, so you can see how they were actually doing this. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you blind guides. Who's he talking to? He's talking to religious leaders here. He's not just talking to naive people that got led astray. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Well, that's utterly ridiculous. I mean, you know, on the face of it. But they were creating these sort of games and rules and insider stuff so that people could convince someone else, you can trust me on this, I'm swearing. And they're doing as it, it, as it were with crossed fingers. They don't really mean it. And if you think this is only a problem in the ancient world, I draw your attention to a title of a book written by Gary North. Don't read the book. It's a big, fat book. It's not entirely good. But the title's important. The title is Crossed Fingers. Do you know what it refers to? Presbyterian history in America, where Presbyterian ministers in the 19th century and early 20th century kept taking their oaths of office saying, I believe the Westminster Confession, the larger, shorter catechisms, are the system of faith taught in Scripture. I solemnly swear with crossed fingers because they didn't believe it at all. And what were they doing? Well, they were redefining the terms. You know, yeah, sure, I can say that Jesus rose from the dead because I don't mean bodily like the whole church throughout history has meant. I meant in kind of a metaphorical way in my heart and my thinking and so on. It's totally dishonest. But, you know, it's possible for people to do that and think of themselves, particularly we're talking about young men primarily here when they're doing it, as being shrewd. See, we're just getting over on those dumb fundamentalists there, right? Crossed fingers. Now, you may impress some other human being that you're being shrewd, but, beloved, that is an open scandal before Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, to whom each of us must give account. Don't play games with the truth, and don't play games with the law of our God. Second, we need to remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Jesus graciously warns us that we are not going to get away with swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, or by our own heads, as though that doesn't really matter. 
You know, it, it isn't as though Almighty God is over here in a box, and as long as we don't touch that box, we're safe. What does Jesus say? Heaven, well, that's God's throne. Earth, well, that's his footstool, right? It all belongs to him. Your head, well, you know what? We profess that I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's true in a very special way, but the truth is every single creature on the face of the earth belongs to God. He's the creator. We are the creatures. And of course, the Lord mentions Jerusalem, which is a big deal to them. We wouldn't do this today, but Jerusalem's the city of the great king. It's where God has placed his name, where his law is going to go out, and his rule is going to go forth. How, how dare you imagine that you can play games with those and be in good stead with God? I do want to say something about this issue about our heads, because actually Jesus may also be pointing us in a slightly different direction as well. It includes the fact that my head belongs entirely to God, right? I ought not to pretend that that, that I have control over this or sovereignty over this. It doesn't touch on the Lord when I lie like that. Nevertheless, a really, really fine New Testament scholar, an expert on Matthew, uh, Jeffrey Gibbs points out what I think is an intriguing idea. He points out that many Jews were playing games in our Lord's day with the commandments around swearing, and as they did so, they didn't simply devalue words. When you lie, you you devalue words because now people can't trust you. But they weren't simply devaluing words. They were inflating their own self-importance. They were acting as though my oath can bring it about. I'm the one who can change the circumstances, right? And they weren't willing to have their, depend, their significance be a dependent significance. They wanted it to exist in their own person. Gibbs writes, Such causatry also causes people to have an inflated view of their own importance and significance. To swear by one's head implies that one can actually affect a change of some significance. Jesus pointedly underscores how self-deceptive that is. No man can even change the color of a single hair on his head. Why then swear by means of it? Let spoken words have their proper significance, and let the people who speak remember their own frame, but they are but dust. I think Gibbs is on to something. An excessive need for other people to accept everything that I am saying or everything that you are saying, please notice that word excessive. It's appropriate for us to want people to believe us. But an excessive need for other people to accept everything I am saying or everything that you are saying is actually an indication that we have an inflated view of ourselves. Don't get me wrong here. You are significant. You were created in the image of God. You you were redeemed by Jesus Christ and brought into God's family so that you would be a daughter or a son of God forever. You will live and reign with Jesus Christ. It is a type of significance that the world can't even imagine. But beloved, it is a significance that is a dependent significance. Our significance is found in Christ in our relationship to God. This desire this inordinate desire to have everyone else take everything we say at face value and just accept it is a quest for an independent significance. And we ought to say, let it go. 
I don't need to impress this person. All I need to do is please my Father who is in heaven. So, first, don't play games with God's law. And second, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That primarily emphasizes the negative, which is a little bit bad because I think what Jesus is emphasizing in this passage is primarily the positive. That, that's where he's driving us toward. So third, let us speak as people who belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 37 with me. Jesus says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. By the way, if you look down at your translation of the Bible, that last word evil probably has a footnote that says, alternatively, the evil one. I actually think that's more likely here. Um, The Greek word has the Greek article in front of it, the, we normally translate it. And uh, the context, not only of this passage, but of the whole Bible, makes that seem more likely, that Jesus is saying it comes from Satan himself. Um, Think back to uh, the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells his opponents this. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, doesn't that really fit well with what Jesus is driving at in this passage? That when we open ourselves up to shading the truth, we're actually opening ourselves up not simply to abstract evil, but to the evil one who will carry out his mischief through our words and our tongues. So how should we speak in our day-to-day lives? Our Lord's answer is profoundly simple. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Dependence upon the Lord for our significance is astonishingly simple. It's actually good for us. We can rest in that and have peace. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. We do not have to come up with brilliant or clever plans in order to address all the matters in front of us. All we need to do is be faithful to our God. Now that may be simple, but it is going to require you to take some time. I want to encourage you this very week to take some time to contemplate how you use your words now and how you can better use your words to glorify God in the future. You have to plan a bit. Um, Just as you don't try to figure out the physical limits of a dating relationship while you're in the backseat of a car with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you can't figure out how to rightly tame your tongue to the glory of God when you're in the midst of a heated conversation. So I have some quiet time this week. Think about how you're using your tongues and whether or not you're using it to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ and to glorify God, or you're using it to glorify yourself. 
I want to give you an analogy here um, that maybe will help fix this in your mind a bit. Uh, Warren Buffett is largely considered to be the greatest investor of our lifetime. I mean, he did manage to become worth some 80, 90, one time $100 billion. He's given away like $50 billion already, uh, almost entirely through investing, right? An extraordinary investor. And one of the things he tells people is, most people would be much better if they were given a punch card with just 20 punches on it when they were born. And that was all the investments they could make in their entire life. And the idea is, if you knew you only had 20, you wouldn't use them up all this year making a bunch of trades knowing that you couldn't make any investments after that. You'd be much more careful about each one of the investments you made and therefore probably have much better results. Well, I'm not in a position to evaluate Warren Buffett. I am a theologian, right? I am, I am not a professional investor. But I can tell you that that same principle works with our tongues. The more you say the less careful you are about each of your words. The less you say, the more you're going to measure your speech to make sure it's having the intended purpose, building other people up and glorifying your Father in heaven. And this isn't just a kind of earthy bit of wisdom. This has the backing of Scripture. As Proverbs 10 verse 19 puts it, where words are many, sin is not absent. Let me say that again. Where words are many, sin is not absent. So let me suggest that it might be a useful thing for many of us, probably for all of us, if we just say less in the week ahead. Let's try to say a bit less. In particular, let's be slower to offer words in emotionally charged situations or in an effort to show that we are right. No matter how much we speak, let's work at being people who speak the simple and plain truth. After all, we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and our faithful Savior doesn't only speak the truth at all times, our faithful Savior is the truth. Let us speak in such a way that our words will demonstrate that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Amen.